As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Greetings once again, fellow Flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. I hope you're all taking care out there. I know it's been a stressful time as of late, and I'm happy at least we get to hang out right now. This is episode 18 of PCPC. You know, when we had our first episode a little over a year ago, I really thought we were going to do 10 episodes or so and call it a day. I thought this podcast would be a short history intro into aviation project. Well, thanks to all of you writing your encouraging reviews and befriending us on Twitter at Plane Crash Pod, we've decided just to keep on churning out the episodes for you all, and now we're at episode 18. I think you all know by now that I'm a shameless review junkie. Your reviews get me higher than you could ever know. So all I'm going to say today is give me my fix, hand it over, leave a review wherever you're listening to the pod. On today's episode of PCPC, we'll be taking a look at Japan Airlines Flight 123, a scheduled flight from Tokyo to Osaka, Japan, on the evening of August 12th, 1985. As our guest today, we are lucky enough to be joined by a remarkable human being, a generous and thoughtful person that I know you've all come to hold in high regard. It's time to welcome Miss Tess Andrade to the show. Tess, why don't you say hello to the people of planet Earth? Hello, people of planet Earth, and hello, Michael. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Thanks for being on the podcast. So, daylight savings just kicked in. Are you a fan of daylight savings? Does it mess up your schedule? Uh, It depends. I don't love when the clock is turned forward. I don't like to lose that valuable time sleeping in. Yeah, I like (laughs) the light at the end of the day more, but that's true. I feel you on the sleep. There were two items I want to quickly touch upon from our previous episode that came to my attention this past week. On the previous episode of PCPC, we discussed the Uberlingen mid-air collision. I noticed a few days ago when re-listening to the air traffic control recording that DHL Flight 611's pilots radioed over to Peter Nielsen 13 seconds before the collision. The pilot said, 600, TCAS descent, informing Nielsen that Flight 611 was given a descent command from TCAS. Nielsen had just finished telling Flight 2937 to expect traffic at their 2 o'clock, so he didn't pick up on this transmission from Flight 611. I just thought this was another interesting moment. 
a clue that Nielsen might have been able to pick up on if he wasn't overwhelmed that night. That flight 611 and flight 2937 were both descending at the same time in an attempt to avoid each other. Point two I want to mention is a new analogy I thought up for TCAS. We talked about TCAS last week. TCAS stands for Traffic Collision Avoidance System. Not sure I did a great job of explaining it. And one analogy that came to mind this past week that I think might help some of you out there is TCAS is basically plain Tinder. Tinder is a popular dating app where people share their name, age, location, gender, and transmit it out to everyone else out on the app within a certain distance. Well, TCAS, or plain Tinder, is pretty similar. Planes transmit their speed, bearing, altitude to all the other planes in the immediate vicinity. The major difference between TCAS and Tinder, though, is with TCAS, you really don't want to match. So in other words, you don't want to swipe right. Yes, exactly. A match on TCAS means you're on a path to slamming into another plane. Planes like to socially distance themselves from others. They're happy in their solitude in the skies. So those were the two orders of business about last week's episode that I wanted to cover. Well, thank you for that very creative analogy. No problem. Tess, we've been avoiding the discussion so far, but I think it's time that we address the elephant in the room. The big story of 2020 so far has been the coronavirus, a disease that has now spread across the entire globe and has been wreaking havoc on the world economy. Both domestic and international airlines have been hit particularly hard because of all the uncertainty and panic caused by the outbreak. United Airlines, American Airlines, Delta, they're all cutting flights. American Airlines announced a 55% reduction in flights across the Pacific from the U.S. Delta's cutting international flights by 25%. Airlines have been canceling numerous flights due to the lack of demand, and they're also encouraging employees to sign up for unpaid leaves of absence. The U.S. government just announced a ban on flights from the U.S. from Europe, with exception to the U.K., and today they actually banned U.K. and Ireland as well. So it's a pretty tough for all those involved in the airline industry and tourism industry. It seems like many people are choosing to stay put and not fly anywhere anytime soon. Does that make sense to you, Tess? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that we should all do our part and definitely um, social distance during this time. Yeah. In Europe, at many airports, there's an 80-20 rule, meaning airlines have to operate at least 80% of their airport slots each day where they might lose their place to competitors. So airlines have resorted to flying ghost flights planes with no passengers on board just to park their planes at the gate at these airports so they don't lose their coveted airport space in the future when they're anticipating things return to normal. Seems like a big waste of time and fuel to me. Um, Yeah, it seems like they should change that rule because that doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, I had a flight personally um, that I was planning on going back to St. Louis. I was going to see my grandma that's about to turn 100 years old. My sister just had a baby and I had to cancel my flight. Um, cancel that trip all together. How have uh, how has coronavirus affected you personally so far? Well, here in California, uh, we're definitely feeling the effects of it. There is a an atmosphere of of panic here. I would mm-hmm. say. Would you agree with that? I would agree with you. Yeah. Um, and I have been practicing social distancing. That's good. That's considerate towards out. others and good for you. Yeah, I mean, my thought is that I'm. I am young and healthy right now, but I don't want to put anyone else at risk and I don't want to put undue stress on our healthcare system. Well, you're a smart person. I think uh, we're all 
you know, feeling anxiety and stress. We're not used to this world. I get it. I'm in the same boat as everybody else out there. Everyone's worried about how this is going to impact them. They're scared of getting sick. They're scared of their loved ones getting sick. They are worried about how this is going to impact their life and their job and their next paycheck. I think we all just need a little time to adjust to this new world we've been dealing with and take several deep breaths for maybe a couple days. We should realize that we're most likely going to be fine. A lot of us are young and middle-aged and our immune systems are in good shape. And the number one concern that us younger or middle-aged people should have right now is how are we going to shelter older human beings from this disease? Now's the time to be selfless, not the time to be panicking and making life difficult for the people that actually need supplies and can't get it on their own. I totally agree. I think that we should all be acting with those people in mind and also not being selfish in just going about life as usual. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, an irregular time in history. And I think some people are in denial about that, but I think that that's, that is a little bit selfish, honestly. Well, I think we're all just reacting to this unusual world and we don't know how to react to it. It feels like we're suddenly thrust in the middle of a movie. I think we have a choice, you know, are we going to be panicky and scared like frightened little pussycats or are we going to show some backbone and be courageous and unleash an ocean of love for our fellow man and older human beings that are don't have the strong immune systems that we have or, you know, human beings with health problems. I think it'd be nice if we could figure out a way to help them and we can help them by staying at home and making sure this thing doesn't spread unnecessarily. Exactly. So start streaming people. Yeah. Start streaming your Netflix. One other thought I had was to be honest, I think we're going to have something far more worse in our lifetime. We're going to have a disease sometime that's, you know, more deadly. There's going to be terrorist attacks. There might be a war And this could be viewed as like a training scenario for that future main event. So I think it's important that we show backbone now, stand up tall, support each other, sacrifice for each other, because we need to, you know, develop that skill for the future. And we should realize that uh, that's what we're doing right now is we're running that training seminar for future. Right. Yeah. And also not use this as an opportunity to be xenophobic. This isn't a, it's not a foreign disease. It's something that we we all have in common. We're all mm-hmm. going through this together and um, it's definitely not the time to um, turn against each other. Yeah. We just need to be there for each other. Everything's going to be good. We're going to fight this together and uh, we'll just band together and Hopefully in the future we'll be back on vacations, back in the friendly skies. For right now, we're just going to have to hang out with one another and uh, watch some shows and listen to some podcasts and hang out with you all on Twitter. Thanks for uh, giving us messages and befriending us. We're all going to, you know, be spending time on our phones and televisions and reading books. So Yeah, and on the upside, we won't have to be worried about FOMO anymore because nothing is happening. Yeah, we're all chilling at home. Tess, you showed me this past week how you've been working on a new PCPC website with official PCPC merchandise and a Patreon page for the podcast. You've really been unleashing a lot of work lately. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed, Michael. I have been hard at work on our website. It's going to be up soon, hopefully by the time this podcast is out. What is the website? The website is www.planecrashpod.com. Nice. And you'll have episodes up there and you'll have some merch that you can purchase. Sweet. Um, We may be rolling out the merch kind of gradually as we figure things out. Yeah. 
Um, and then we have a Patreon as well. Nice. We actually have our listeners to thank for that because we definitely would not have got that off the ground had we not received such positive feedback from yeah. our listeners. So thank you guys for encouraging us to do that. What's the Patreon link? The Patreon is uh, www.patreon.com slash plane crash pod. Thank you, Tess, for your work. Uh, absolutely. Everybody check it out. Let us know what you think. We're very curious to hear your thoughts. Great. This week, our sponsor again is BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest online counseling service. It's counseling for the 21st century. Maybe you have some personal or professional goals you want to achieve this year, and you wish you had someone to hold you accountable. Or maybe something's been bothering you, and you wish you could have an intelligent, objective, caring human being to help you get to the bottom of it. Well, BetterHelp can help you. With BetterHelp, you can communicate with a certified counselor via video chat or over the phone. You can message them 24 hours a day, and you can work inside your schedule outside the typical 9 to 5 of traditional therapy. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. And thanks again to BetterHelp. And Michael, I just have to jump in really quickly and say what we're all th- probably thinking, which is that BetterHelp is the only form of corona-proof therapy. That's right. Anxiety is running high. Tension is running high. And what better way to work through that tension than to get on an app and FaceTime with your therapist? Yeah, that sounds amazing. That's good. Good point, Tess. I like to mention at the top of every podcast that I'm not an aviation expert by any means. We started this podcast as an anxiety exposure therapy of sorts to address our anxieties surrounding flying, reasoning that if we exposed ourselves to this topic that we're fearful of, might tamp down some of our fears as we learn more about how planes work. We recognize that each accident we discuss is a tragedy in the lives of many human beings on the planet. We in no way want to make light of that or be insensitive to that fact. We just think that discussing why these accidents from the past occurred and how they contributed to changes that improved the safety of the air travel system is an important discussion to have. You ready to get started, Tess? Michael, I am. Japanese Airlines Flight 123 was a scheduled flight from Haneda Airport in Tokyo, Japan to Osaka, Japan on the evening of Monday, August 12th, 1985. The plane was a Boeing 747-SR-100. The 747-SR, or short-range airplane, was developed for Japan Airlines in the early 1970s. Japan Airlines wanted an airplane designed specifically for their needs. Operating in a densely populated country like Japan, they wanted a large plane that could fit a large number of passengers. Because the distance between Japanese cities isn't that far, they wanted a plane that could be flown short distances and withstand five to six flight cycles per day over a 20-year period. The original 747 was touted as the ultimate long-range aircraft at the time it was released in 1970. The original 747 had a design life objective of 24,600 flights over a 20-year period. Well, this 747-SR that was built for Japan Airlines had a design life objective of 52,000 flights over 20 years. So the 747-SR was built to endure over 27,000 more flight cycles than the original 747. 
The 747SR was built with strengthened landing gear and body structure, with extra structural support in the wings and fuselage, which allowed the plane to deal with the wear and tear of 52,000 takeoffs, cabin pressurization cycles, and landings. So this plane was built to be tough and withstand all that extra stress from twice as many flight cycles compared to the original 747s in service with other airlines. The 747SR also had a 20% reduction in fuel capacity and greater payload capability compared to the original 747. This plane used for flight 123 was delivered to Japan Airlines on January 30th, 1974. The plane had 25,030 flying hours and 18,835 total landings over the 11 years that it was in service. The captain of Japan Airlines Flight 123 was Captain Masami Takahama from Akita, Japan. Captain Takahama was 49 years old at the time of the incident. He was a flight instructor for Japan Airlines, and on Flight 123, he was seated in the right-hand seat, training his first officer. Captain Takahama was hired by Japan Airlines on December 1st, 1966, so he had been with the airline for almost 19 years. He received his rating to fly 747s in July of 1975 and became a captain in June 1977. Captain Takahama had 12,423 flight hours, 4,842 hours flying Boeing 747s. The first officer of Flight 123 was First Officer Yutaka Sasaki from Kobe, Japan. He was 39 years old at the time of the incident. First Officer Sasaki joined Japan Airlines on April 18, 1970, so he'd been with the airline for over 15 years. First Officer Sasaki was training to be a captain on Flight 123, so he was seated in the left-hand seat in the cockpit. He received his rating to fly 747s in May 1979, First Officer Sasaki had 3,963 total flying hours, 2,665 hours flying 747s. The flight engineer for Flight 123 was Flight Engineer Hiroshi Fukuda. He was 46 years old at the time of the incident. Flight Engineer Fukuda joined Japan Airlines on April 1, 1957, so he had been with the airline for over 28 years. He's from Kyoto, Japan. He had 9,831 flight hours and 3,846 hours on 747s. Flight 123 was a packed flight with 509 passengers on board. The flight took place on the Oban holiday week in Japan. Oban is a Buddhist holiday where it's believed that the spirits of ancestors come back to the world to visit their relatives. Oban is one of three major holidays in Japan, and each year it's customary for many Japanese to return to their hometown spend time with family, and visit the graves of their ancestors, make time for reflection. So many of the 509 on board Flight 123 were headed home for the holiday. Twelve flight attendants composed the cabin crew, and with the cockpit crew of three and 509 passengers, there were 524 human beings on board. The plane used for Flight 123 had already been used by Japan Airlines for four flights on the day of the incident, August 12, 1985. The fourth flight of the day, Flight 366, from Fukuoka to Tokyo, landed in Tokyo at 5.12 p.m., and then taxied and parked at spot 18 at Haneda Airport at 5.17 p.m. For Flight 123, there was a change of captain and first officer, but flight engineer Hiroshi Fukuda had just been part of the previous cockpit crew of the previous flight, Flight 366. 
Fukuda actually flew as a flight engineer on the two previous flights with the same plane, Flight 363 and Flight 366. So Flight 123 was going to be Flight Engineer Fukuda's third flight in a row on the same plane, same day. Flight 123 was scheduled to be a relatively short and painless flight, only 54 minutes long from Tokyo to Osaka, with the planned cruising altitude of 24,000 feet. Between 5 30 p.m. and 6, the plane filled up with mostly Japanese passengers eager to get home for the holiday to spend time with their families. The pilots completed their pre flight checklist, and at 6 04 p.m., Flight 123 pushed away from spot 18 and started taxiing towards the runway. A few minutes later, at 6 12 p.m., 12 minutes behind schedule, Japan Airlines Flight 123 takes off from runway 15L. At Hanada International Airport in Ruto, Osaka, Japan. The first 12 minutes of the flight are perfectly normal. The plane gradually climbs in altitude, initially flying a northeast heading before making a 180 degree hairpin turn and heading southwest, flying first over Tokyo Bay, then Sagami Bay. At 6 24 p.m., a passenger pushes a call button on the ceiling above their seat. And ask if they can use the lavatory, even though the seatbelt sign hasn't turned off yet. A flight attendant calls the cockpit and says, Someone wants to use the lavatory. May I permit it? First Officer Sasaki responds, Be careful. And Flight Engineer Fukuda adds, Okay, be careful, please. First Officer Sasaki says, Quick. And then the flight attendant says, Yes, thank you. She hangs up the phone in the back of the plane and tells the passenger that they can quickly use the restroom. 17 seconds after this exchange, at 6 24 p.m. and 35 seconds, as Flight 123 is reaching its cruising altitude of 24,000 feet, a loud bang is heard on the cockpit voice recorder. Captain Masami Takahama exclaims, Hey, something exploded! Squawk 77! First Officer Sasaki says, Gear door! And Captain Takahama says, Check gear, check gear! Engine? Flight engineer Fukuda says, All engine, communicating to his crew that the engines are functioning normally. First Officer Sasaki sets the plane's transponder to Squawk 77, transmitting an emergency distress signal. In these initial seconds after the explosion, while the pilots are looking over their instruments trying to figure out what's wrong with the plane, in the passenger cabin, the oxygen masks have dropped. The plane has suffered an explosive decompression, and the ceilings by the bathroom in the rear of the plane have collapsed. The chief flight attendant gets on the PA and says, Put the oxygen mask on, please. Fasten seatbelts, please. This is followed up with a pre recorded announcement triggered by the explosive decompression that says, Fasten your seatbelt, put out your cigarettes. This is an emergency descent. Meanwhile, in the cockpit, Captain Takahama radios over to Tokyo Area Control Center. Tokyo, Japan, 123, request uh, immediate.、Uh, Trouble. Request return back to Hanada. Descend and maintain 220. Over. Tokyo ACC responds Roger approved as you request. You went right or left turn. Captain Takahama responds Going to turn right. Over. So immediately at Tokyo ACC, this is a clue as to how serious things are on Flight 123 already. Captain Takahama didn't even wait for an approval to turn. He just said, I'm turning right. The plane is now banking 40 degrees to the right. And Captain Takahama screams to his first officer, Don't bank so much. First officer Sasaki responds, Yes, sir. Again, Captain Takahama scolds, I said, Don't bank so much. And again, his first officer responds, Yes, sir. 
As First Officer Sasaki is twisting his control column to the left while the plane is not responding. Mystified, Captain Takahama says, what's going on? Flight engineer Fukuda cuts in and says, hydraulic pressure has dropped. Hydro. For the next minute, Captain Takahama again tells his first officer not to bank so much and tells him to pull up to try and get the nose of the plane up. But the plane's not responding to any of the first officer's pulls or twists of his control column. Captain Takahama says, hydro all out? And his flight engineer Fukuda responds, yes. All three men in the cockpit then agree that they need to descend in altitude. It's now 6.27 p.m., three minutes after the explosion, and Tokyo ACC contacts Flight 123. Japan Air 123, confirm you are declaring an emergency. Is that right? Captain Takahama responds, that's affirmative. Tokyo ACC asks, request your nature of emergency, to which the pilots of Flight 123 did not respond. At this point, the plane has stopped its right-hand turn and climbed a bit in altitude to 24,400 feet. It's theorized that the pilots might be suffering from hypoxia at this moment, because for the previous three minutes, the plane hasn't been pressurized. They don't have oxygen, and the pilots keep on asking the same question over and over again and getting the same answer about the hydraulics. They seem to not be able to comprehend that the plane has lost its hydraulic controls. Maybe it was just the shock of the situation. Flight engineer Fukuda says, hydro pressure all lost. And first officer Suzaki responds, all lost, is that right? Twice he says this. And then the first officer, Suzaki says, the company, uh, ask, uh, please, uh, make a request to the company, please. Captain Takahama replies, why are you making a fuss? In the passenger cabin, the plane is banking left and right, up and down. It's a rough ride for everyone. The chief flight attendant gets on the PA and says, may I have your attention, please, passengers with children, please, those of you sitting with your children, prepare oxygen masks for your children. At 6.28 p.m., Tokyo ACC radios over, Japan Air 124. They make a mistake and call it 124 instead of 123. Fly heading 090, radar vector to Oshima. Captain Takahama responds, but now uncontrollable. And Tokyo ACC radios back, uncontrollable, roger, understood. The plane has now descended to 22,100 feet and is flying over Suruga Bay. First Officer Suzaki says, right turn, descend. And Captain Takahama says to his first officer, put your heart into it. Suzaki responds, yes. At 6.29 p.m., now five minutes post-explosion, the captain says the engine could stall. And first officer Suzaki responds, yes, sir, I'll be careful. To which the captain replies, you don't say yes. First officer Suzaki says, I know, sir. And the captain says, descend. For the next two minutes, the plane is climbing in altitude again. At 6.31 p.m., Flight 123 is almost at 25,000 feet. It's climbed 3,000 feet over the previous three minutes. Tokyo ACC radios over, Japan Air 123, uh, can you descend? Captain Takahama replies, ah, roger, now descending. Tokyo ACC radios, your position is 72 miles to Nagoya. Can you land at Nagoya? Captain Takahama responds, uh, negative, request back to Haneda. Tokyo ACC replies, All right, uh, you may speak in Japanese from now on, to which the captain says, yes, yes. Now, flight 123 keeps ascending and falling in altitude between a range of 25,000 feet and 20,000 feet. The hydraulics are gone, so the pilots can't control the plane. They can't make the plane ascend or descend in the direction they want it to, and they can't turn to the left or the right. Flight 123 is caught in a fugoid cycle. 
Very similar to what we discussed with United Airlines Flight 232 that crash-landed at Sioux Falls Airport in Iowa in 1989. It's almost like the plane is on a roller coaster. At the height of this fugoid cycle, the plane is cresting and losing speed, so the nose of the plane tips down in the sky, and suddenly the plane is falling in altitude rapidly, just like a roller coaster blasting downwards on its track. With this fall, the plane is quickly picking up speed, and with this speed, it gains lift. So the nose of the plane raises with this newfound speed and lift, and then the plane climbs in altitude again until it loses speed, dips its nose down, and starts the whole cycle over again. In addition to being caught in this fugoid cycle, the plane is yawing back and forth and rolling side to side. It must have been quite a disorienting feeling to be flying or riding on the plane after the explosion. From 6.31 to 6.33 p.m., flight engineer Fukuda tries to find out where exactly the plane is damaged, and if passengers are able to use their oxygen mask, if the oxygen is working, Flight engineer Fukuda says that the baggage compartment at the rear of the plane has collapsed and that passengers were using their oxygen masks, but the masks have stopped working. So he suggested the captain that the plane make an emergency descent, and the captain replies, understood. Flight engineer Fukuda also says, if possible, I think it would be better to use oxygen masks. And the captain responds, yes. But the crew never uses oxygen masks the rest of the flight, possibly because the hypoxia had confused them and they weren't thinking clearly. Or maybe the situation was so intense that it just slipped their attention. At 6.35 p.m., flight engineer Fukuda radios over to Japan Airlines Company Radio. Japan Airlines Company Radio had been trying to contact Flight 123 over the past couple minutes to see if they could help out in any way. Fukuda says, Japan Air Tokyo, uh, Japan Air uh, 123 over. The employee at Japan Airlines radios back, Japan Air 123, Japan Air Tokyo, Tokyo ACC monitored your emergency call at 26 minutes, 30 miles west of Oshima. Is that right? Flight engineer Fukuda replies, uh, listen right now, uh, R5 door uh, has broken, uh, so uh, right now we are descending. The Japan Airlines employee responds, Roger, is it the captain's intention to return to Tokyo? Can you return to Haneda? Flight engineer Fukuda responds, uh, wait a moment. We're now making an emergency descent. Uh, We'll contact you again in a little while. Keep monitoring us, please. As Fukuda is having this conversation with Japan Airlines Company Radio, the plane's turning to the right, heading towards Mount Fuji. Captain Takahama and First Officer Suzaki are altering the thrust levels to the engines to try and smooth out the fugoid cycle the plane's caught in, and they have a little success. Captain keeps commanding his first officer to keep the nose down and descend, and first officer Suzaki replies, yes, sir. At 6.38 p.m., the flight engineer suggests lowering the landing gear to try and increase drag and somewhat stop the fugoid cycle. Since the hydraulics are gone, initially they have some trouble getting the gear down, but by two minutes later at 6.40 p.m., flight engineer Fukuda lowers the gear manually. The flight's now at 22,400 feet, and the lowering of the gear makes the plane a little bit more stable, but it makes it more difficult to turn the plane using power to the engines. For the next six minutes, from 6.40 p.m. to 6.46 p.m., Captain Takahama and First Officer Sasaki are just battling. It's a high-stress situation. They feel helpless, but they're giving it their all. They're trying their damnedest to manipulate power to the four engines to keep the plane in the air. They're afraid the plane will stall at any moment. 
The plane does a 360 degree right turn in the sky and then another 60 degree right hand turn. The pilots probably didn't realize it, but the far left engine, engine one, was being given more power than the other three engines, and this caused the plane to turn right continuously for an extended period of time. While this turn is occurring, the plane is finally descending significantly in altitude, breaking out of the 25,000 to 20,000 foot range that it had been in since the explosion. At 6 45 p.m., the plane is recorded at an altitude of 13,500 feet. At 6 46 p.m., Captain Takahama says, Stay with us, please. Stay with us, please. And then 10 seconds later, he says, This may be hopeless. A minute later, at 6 47 p.m., flight engineer Fukuda says, The hydraulic quantity is all lost. Tokyo ACC radios over. Can you control the aircraft now? Captain Takahama replies, It's uncontrollable. And Tokyo ACC responds, Roger. The plane is now dropped in altitude to 9,000 feet. And the captain says, Hey, there's a mountain ahead. Turn right. It's a mountain. Take control. Right turn. First officer Suzaki says, I know, sir. Again, Takahama implores, We could hit the mountain. Right turn. Maximum power. At 6 48 p.m., flight engineer Fukuda says, Keep trying. And Captain Takahama shouts, Left turn. Increase power. Left turn this time. The plane has descended another 2,000 feet down to 6,800 feet. Flying above a mountainous region northwest of Tokyo. The captain commands, reduce power,、uh, right, right, lower the nose, lower the nose. So you can tell from the dialogue that they're trying to make turns and control the aircraft by increasing and decreasing power to the engines. Captain Takahama says, lower the nose, good, we'll go into the mountains. First officer Suzaki asks, shall I increase power? And the captain responds, more power, more power. A minute later at 6 49 p.m., the captain says, Ah,、uh, no good. We are stalling. Max power, max power, max power. The altitude is lost. First officer Suzaki says, We're gaining speed. It's too much. The captain says, Just give it a try. Stick with it. A few more seconds pass, and the captain says, You'll have to control pitch with power. To which the flight engineer Fukuda replies, Power control is okay. Let's use power control. First officer Suzaki says, Speed is 220 knots. It's now 6 50 p.m. 26 minutes ago, the explosion occurred, leaving the pilots helpless without their flight controls. And these three pilots are still keeping this plane in the sky by battling their butts off. Captain Takahama keeps yelling orders to keep the nose up and hang in there and fight. The flight engineer Fukuda is behind the pilots shouting, Max power! Captain Takahama tells his first officer, Lower the nose, the rest is okay, just do your job. At 6 51 p.m., flight engineer Fukuda extends the flaps and says, Flap is now being extended. And Captain Takahama shouts, Push! The pilots have battled and pushed the plane back up to 9,800 feet. Two minutes later, at 6 53 p.m., Tokyo ACC radios over and tells flight 123 to change their frequency to 119.7. The plane's now at 13,000 feet. The captain radios over that the plane is still uncontrollable and he tells his first officer to make a left turn. Flight engineer Fukuda sets the new frequency and radios over Japan Air 123, I've selected 119.7, request position. Tokyo Approach Control responds Japan Air 123, your position, 45 miles northwest of Honda. Flight engineer Fukuda asks, How many miles? And Tokyo Approach radios, According to our radar, 55 miles northwest. Uh, 25 miles west of Kumagaya. 
Roger, I'll speak in Japanese. We are ready for your approach at any time. Also, Yokota Landing is available. Let us know your intentions. Captain Takahama is still fighting to keep this plane in the sky. He shouts, Nose up! Nose up! Stop flapping now! First Officer Sasaki says, Flap up! Flap up! Flap up! And the captain screams, Power! Flap up! Flight Engineer Fukuda says, It is up. The time is now 6.56 p.m. 32 minutes after the explosion at the back of the plane, and Captain Takahama screams, Power! Power! First Officer Sasaki says, I'm trying! The plane is at 8,400 feet. Captain Takahama says, raise the nose, raise the nose, power. Suddenly, flight 123 plunges into a dive while banking left. The ground proximity warning starts to go off in the cockpit. Sink rate, whoop, whoop, pull up, whoop, whoop, pull up. Captain Takahama says, we cannot do anything now. At 6.56 p.m. and 27 seconds, the number four engine, located on the far right wing of the plane, clips trees located on the top of a ridge on Mount Makuni. This tears off the number four engine from the plane. The plane banks hard to the right, flipping on its back while airborne for another three seconds before slamming into another ridge just over 500 meters away from the first ridge. The plane exploded in flames, but surprisingly, four human beings survived the accident. Four females that were all seated in the back of the plane survived. 520 of the 524 human beings on board Japan Air Flight 123 died on August 12, 1985. Rescue operations for Flight 123 were delayed and quite difficult because the plane had crashed in a remote mountainous area at just over 5,100 feet. 20 minutes after the crash, an American Air Force plane, a C-130, flew overhead the crash site and radioed the location to the Rescue Coordination Center. Two hours after the crash, a U.S. helicopter arrived above the crash site and offered to drop two Marines down to aid in the rescue but Japanese authorities told the crew to stand down. Details around why they were told to stand down are murky, but many believe there were political reasons. Possibly the Japanese wanted to be the first ones to be at the crash site and didn't want the aid of a foreign military. Another theory is different Japanese groups were competing to be the first to help out. The weather was poor that night. Maybe that also prevented an effective rescue operation from taking place in a timely manner. In any event, it took 14 hours until emergency services could reach the crash site at 9 a.m. the next morning. Many Japanese emergency personnel spent the entire night building makeshift helicopter landing pads and building a rescue hub with tents to aid in the effort. Four survivors were found in the morning. Yumi Ochii, a 26-year-old off-duty flight attendant. Kaiko Kaokami, a 12-year-old girl that had extensive injuries and had to be hospitalized for three months but completely recovered and Hiroki and Mikiku Yoshizaki, a mother and daughter, seated next to each other in the rear of the plane. Yumi gave an interview months after the crash, and she said, The plane started dropping at a sharp angle, almost vertically. Soon afterward, there were two or three very severe impacts. Cabin seats and cushions all around me broke loose, then came tumbling down on top of me. I was pinned under some of the cabin seats, and suddenly there was a piercing pain in my stomach. Finally, when all the noise and confusion of the impact had stopped, I was able to unfasten my seatbelt. But then I found I was trapped between the seats and couldn't move at all. She also said she felt hope when she heard a helicopter overhead after the crash and thought help was on the way. She waved her hand at the helicopter, but it flew away and she fell asleep. In the morning, she heard the voices of rescuers and they pulled her from the wreckage and flew her to a hospital. Many victims of Flight 123 were found to have injuries that, if they had been treated sooner, might not have been life-threatening. 
Unfortunately, the victims not only had to survive a horrible crash, but 14 hours of being exposed to the cold at 5,100 feet with no medical care. Again, only four of the 524 on board survived. So now we have to ask ourselves what happened. What occurred on flight 123 that caused an explosion and rendered the 747 uncontrollable? Well, unfortunately, this wasn't the first incident that this plane had been involved in. On June 2nd, 1978, just over seven years earlier, this same plane used for Flight 123 was used for Japan Airlines Flight 115, a flight from Tokyo to Osaka, the same route that Flight 123 was flying. When landing at Osaka International Airport on runway 32L, the plane bounced after touchdown and floated in the air for a few seconds. The pilots pulled the nose of the plane up and the tail of the plane struck the ground with heavy force upon second touchdown. Two passengers were seriously injured, 23 others had minor injuries on Flight 115. Due to the tail strike of Flight 115, the rear fuselage of the plane was damaged and the rear pressure bulkhead was damaged as well. The rear pressure bulkhead keeps the cabin pressurized so passengers can breathe at high altitudes. The rear pressure bulkhead looks like one of those huge satellite dishes that people in the suburbs used to have in their backyards in the 1980s. So on the plane, the bottom of this rear pressure bulkhead was damaged. So Japanese Airlines needs to get their plane repaired. Boeing sends over some engineers, and instead of replacing the entire rear pressure bulkhead, they decide to just replace the bottom half that was damaged. From June 17th to July 11th, 1978, they repair the rear bulkhead, and they do so by using a splice plate. Boeing engineers invented this process for repairing the bulkhead that called for one continuous splice plate with three rows of rivets to connect the top and bottom half of the rear pressure bulkhead together. Well, the engineers that repaired the plane that would eventually be Flight 123 used two splice plates instead of the one continuous splice plate. The fact that they used two splice plates dramatically reduced the effectiveness and strength of the repair. Over the following 12,000 flights after the repair job, fatigue cracks slowly emerged along the rows of rivets, holding the pressure bulkhead in one piece. These fatigue cracks were not noticed by inspection crews or maintenance. Finally, on August 12, 1985, as Japan Airlines Flight 123 reached 24,000 feet, 12 minutes into the flight, the faulty repair job gave way. The rear pressure bulkhead cracked along a row of rivets, resulting in an explosive decompression. This explosion ripped the vertical stabilizer, or shark fin-like tail of the 747, off of the plane. The explosion also tore apart four hydraulic lines that ran through the tail of the plane that the pilots used for flight controls. So Flight 123 flew on for 32 minutes after the explosion without a vertical stabilizer and minimal flight control because all the hydraulic systems were drained. It was a pretty amazing feat that the pilots were able to keep the plane in the sky for that long given the damage done to their aircraft. Because the plane flew on for another 32 minutes, this gave time for many passengers to write goodbye notes to their loved ones. One passenger in particular, Hirotsuku Kawaguchi, wrote a famous letter to his family as Flight 123 struggled in the skies, and I'm going to read it as follows. Mariko, Siochi, Chiyoko, please get along well with each other and help your mama. It is sad, but dad won't survive. I don't know the reason. Five minutes have passed. I never want to take an airplane again. Dear God, please help me. 
I didn't imagine that yesterday's dinner was going to be the last one with you all. Something seems to have exploded in the airplane. Smoke is coming out. Airplane is going down. I don't know where we are going, what is going to happen. Suyoshi, please do your best for your mother. Honey, I feel very sorry about what is happening to me. Goodbye. Please take care of our children. It's 6.30 now. The airplane is spinning and going down quickly. I'm so thankful to you that I was able to have a really happy life up to now. The crash of Flight 123 greatly damaged business for Japan Airlines. Japan Airlines President Yasumoto Tagagi resigned his position. Hiru Tomonaga, a coordinator of maintenance for Japan Airlines, committed suicide. Tomonaga left a suicide note that said, I'm atoning with my death. Susumu Tajima was an engineer that inspected the aircraft and deemed it flightworthy. Tajima committed suicide as well, which just makes the sad tragedy even more sad. Lastly, before we bring Tess in for discussion, we have to ask, how did the crash of Flight 123 make flying safer? Well, Japan's Aircraft Accident Investigation Commission released its report with safety recommendations on June 19, 1987. First, the report encouraged Boeing to reevaluate the design of its rear pressure bulkhead to ensure that it's fail-safe. On Flight 123, their rear pressure bulkhead broke apart. Clearly, this was something Boeing had to take a look at. A structural cover was required within six months to protect the vertical fin from a pressure buildup in the tail section. Next, the report said Boeing should reevaluate its repair procedures for a damaged rear pressure bulkhead. The report encouraged Boeing to consider redesigns to hydraulic systems to ensure that future pressure buildups won't result in catastrophic damage to hydraulic systems. Fourth, the report said that an inspection program beyond the usual visual inspection should be established to detect the extent of possible multiple site fatigue cracking. Next, Boeing sent out a bulletin to all operators of the 747, informing airlines that they should check planes with rear pressure bulkhead repairs to ensure that all those repairs were done correctly. Repairs are now encouraged to be overseen by a second set of eyes to make sure they're completed correctly and regular checks are made for metal fatigue. Lastly, a fuse was installed on the number four hydraulic system upstream from the vertical stabilizer to prevent complete loss of hydraulics in the future if a plane sustains catastrophic damage to the vertical stabilizer. So those were some of the design and maintenance lessons learned from Flight 123 that has made flying safer today. So let's bring in Tess. Any thoughts you'd like to share about the story of Flight 123? Must have been pretty awful to have been a passenger on that flight, but the pilots did a great job of staying professional and trying their best in a very difficult situation, huh? Definitely a really hard episode to listen to. Um, Mm -hmm. Especially that letter that you read was just so sad. And um, it almost read like a journal entry at times, I noticed. But... I think what struck me the most, which I'm sure you'll touch on this as well, was just, you know, how long and hard they, the flight crew, Mm -hmm. fought for their lives. They were really doing everything in their power to live, um, which made the accident feel all the more tragic in the end. Yeah, I mean, it's a very sad story, but that's my main takeaway from the research I did on this flight was that these pilots were complete warriors. Makes me want to cry talking about them. They had every reason to give up, and they never did. They just kept scratching and clawing for more life. Really reminded me of that poem, Rage, Rage Against the Dying of the Light. These guys went out the way we should all try and go out. I actually think it's a really appropriate story for the anxious period that we're living through. 
these guys had a much, much tougher situation than any of us are having right now. And these guys never buckled. They never quit. They always kept fighting and kept fighting. I love the CVR where the captain's always screaming, fight, hang in there, put your heart into it. I mean, he sounds like a coach for a boxer, just like giving this guy this pep talk the entire time. And it makes me really emotional when I read that. Um, It's a very sad story um, because so many people died, but I find it oddly inspirational. These guys just were clawing for more life and they had such a fighting spirit that it's just contagious when i read about it i was like that's what i want to do right now i want to not be buckling and feeling anxious and worried and you know freaking out i want to be like these pilots and just like charge ahead and do what needs to be done yeah absolutely i mean i think that's a really rare quality and you don't often see that in everyday life Yeah, I think it's something that everybody can keep in mind if anyone out there is feeling down or sad about our current predicament. The pilots of Flight 123 never gave up and neither should you. Yeah, like you said, that's a great thing to keep in mind for this kind of strange time that we're in right now. Yeah, I guess we can control the stories that we tell ourselves right now. We control what films we watch, what books we read, and really we should just inundate ourselves with positive messages that tell us to keep on fighting on. And this is one of those stories. Another thought I thought that I found interesting about the story is the pilots flew with limited controls. You know, we don't know for sure that they were able to control the plane that much, but they definitely flew the plane towards a mountainous region that was unpopulated. They're right next to Tokyo, a very populated area. Maybe that could be, you could argue they had no control whatsoever and they just ended up in the mountains. Or you could argue that maybe they knew the plane was kind of out of control and they steered it away from people on the ground. So that's another reason that we could look at them as heroes as, you know, being selfless. Right. Yeah. I guess we couldn't really determine that from the CVR, huh? What their intention was. Yeah. They never said, hey, we're going to crash. Let's get away from the city. Yeah. But they did have some control over where the plane went and it ended up in an unpopulated area when they're right next to Tokyo, which is very densely populated. And it could be argue that that was another example of their selflessness. Right. Yeah. No, it's amazing the way they were able to control the plane. It did remind me a lot of the flight that you talked about, the um, United Airlines flight that crashed in Sioux City. Yeah. Um, it that was very similar. cycle was very similar. Mm-hmm. The fact that they had to use, I guess they had four engines on this plane where the Sioux City one had two. Mm-hmm. So that was a difference. But the pilots were dealing with so many issues in the cockpit. Their vertical right. stabilizer is gone. The hydraulics are gone, so their flight controls are gone. They can have you know minimal control of the plane, but they can only do it by manipulating power to the engine. They're battling hypoxia. They're not getting oxygen to their brain, so the situation must have been confused. To me, it sounded like they were you know riding this crazed bull at a rodeo. Right. Yeah. The way you described it as a roller coaster ride really kind of sent shivers up my spine Mm -hmm. um just imagining that i mean i can barely drive over a hill without feeling a level of nausea so yeah yeah i mean it was also really just amazing that they were able to gain altitude Mm -hmm. um at a certain point was it just once that they did that i think it was one it seems stuck between twenty five thousand feet and 20,000 feet and there was one time i got down to six thousand feet Mm -hmm. and they brought it back to thirteen thousand feet so To me, it also seems like 32 minutes they were stuck in this pressure cooker. 
You know, can you imagine being in a super panicky situation for 30 mm-hmm. seconds and how much that is unpleasant? These guys just rode that out for 32 minutes. Yeah. Like, talk about just being delivered a horrible situation and just never giving up. Totally. Fighting, yeah. fighting, fighting. I think that they are heroes in yeah. my mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of going back to what you said about what lessons we can take away from this. Mm-hmm. I feel like I tend to think the worst when things aren't going well. I can get easily discouraged yeah. and and give up. And um, it's amazing that even in the most trying of circumstances where you could easily feel like all is lost and um, that there's no point even fighting, they were able to put up the fight that they did. Yeah. I think it's courageous and I I view their, this story is sad, definitely sad, but I think it's inspiring in the right light to see that kind of effort put in and that kind of um, determination to not go down easily. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I kept thinking about was just how delayed the rescue efforts were and what a shame Mm -hmm. that was for any of the passengers that may not have been dead at the time of the accident. Yeah. It's hard to say. There, I don't think there's clear a clear story about what happened there, but it seems like they crashed at 5,100 feet. It wasn't like they crashed by a road that was easily accessible. They had to set up makeshift helicopter pads in order to get people up there and basically build a small village to get up there. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, pictures were taken from the ground of the plane while it was still up in the sky. These pictures show the vertical stabilizers completely gone. It's pretty amazing they were able to keep a plane up in the sky for 32 minutes with no vertical stabilizer. I know hindsight is 2020, but you kind of have to wonder how much time or money was saved by trying to fuse these two rear pressure bulkheads together. Seems Absolutely. Like maybe if they could have replaced the entire thing, they should have done that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious here what the reason behind the accident was. You know, shoddy shoddy repair work is what kind of brought the plane down. Mm-hmm. Uh, the daughter of Captain Masami Takahama, Yoko Takahama, was a teenager at the time of the incident. She would later to go on to be a flight attendant for Japan Airlines. Yeah, well, it must be in the family blood to have courage, huh? Yeah, definitely. Another interesting aspect of this story is that one passenger that died in the crash, Akihisa Yukawa, had an undisclosed second family. He left behind a pregnant partner whom he already had a daughter with and his wife. His partner, Susan Bailey, gave birth to another daughter about a month after the crash named Diana. Diana Yukawa is a world-renowned violinist today. She's played solo at the Hollywood Bowl in the Royal Albert Hall. Wow, that's amazing. In 2006, the Japan Airlines Safety Promotion Center was opened in Haneda Airport. The center has a history of the crash, displays on the importance of air safety, and also has a few of the handwritten farewell notes from Flight 123. In 2009, stairs to the crash site were opened up so family members could visit the site more easily. A monument to the victims of Flight 123 is located in Fujioka, Japan. Also, it's worth mentioning that this is the deadliest aircraft accident in history. Yeah, just one plane, 520 people. Right. It's very sad, but hopefully uh, some people out there can take the inspiration that we've taken from this, and we can all have the spirit of those pilots in us in the days ahead. Tess, I have a few items from the world of airline news. Would you like to hear them? Yes, I would. 
American Airlines announced on Tuesday, March 10th, that the airline would suspend change fees for their passengers that purchase flights scheduled to depart between March 10th and April 30th, 2020. Typically, American Airlines charges $200 for flight changes, but in light of the coronavirus outbreak, the airline has implemented a new policy where passengers can change their flight dates free of charge. Delta, United, and JetBlue have all instituted similar policies designed to accommodate passengers during this unusual and uncertain time. Tess, do you think it's comforting that airlines are uh, rolling with the current situation? Definitely. I think it would be really unfair if they didn't. Um, what was the airline you were taking to St. Louis that you American. ended up? And I called them oh, initially did. and they told me that they wouldn't refund my money. And then I called the day before and they said that they would accommodate. So, Got it. So you just had to sort of wait it out until their policy changed with yeah. the, the changing times. Everybody's taking a financial hit. So it's nice that the airline industry is, you know, being reasonable and saying, you know what? No one saw this coming. This is crazy. We need to get people their money back and be super malleable. And they've made billions of dollars over the last couple of years. Hopefully they buy some goodwill for the future. Hopefully things go back to normal, you know, two, six months from now. We'll be back in the skies. We'll see what happens. Totally. It's nice somebody there showing a little humanity and not just trying to keep money. Yeah. Well, I also think that it, um, had they not refunded people, it would have put pressure on folks to travel and then they would be sort of part of the problem. Yeah. That's an excellent point. I mean, given the current situation, I feel kind of petty mentioning these other stories, but due to the coronavirus, a number of airlines have been stepping up their cleaning game to make passengers feel more at ease with the idea of traveling through the friendly skies during these anxious times. According to their website, Delta Airlines has been using a fogging technique with a highly effective EPA-registered disinfectant on planes scheduled for certain international flights that the carrier has been servicing. The Southwest Airlines representative, Brian Parrish, stated that they generally do spot cleans between flights where passengers pick up loose trash or organized magazines. But the airline has recently integrated more thorough cleaning procedures between flights, wiping down tray tables with disinfectants and thoroughly cleaning seats and cabin floors between flights and at the end of each day. What do you think, Tess? Does any of this make you feel better about boarding a plane right now? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. In that case, I'll just be taking the next <laughs> flight to Hawaii. Yeah, I don't think um, I'll be on a plane anytime soon, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I'm sure there are people out there who absolutely have to fly. They might have to fly home so that they can hunker down and self-quarantine, but it's good to know that they have clean planes to be on. Yeah, definitely. Alaska Airlines announced that starting on June 18th, the carrier will fly a daily route from Boise, Idaho, from Everett, Washington's Payne Field. Payne Field is home to the Boeing factory and for years wasn't available to commercial travel. The Boeing Everett factory is where the assembly line for the 747, 757, 777, and 787 planes is located. United Airlines and Alaska Airlines started using Payne Field for commercial travel in March of 2019. Alaska now flies 18 daily flights to Payne Field, located about 25 miles north of downtown Seattle. You can now fly from Los Angeles, Palm Springs, Las Vegas, Boise, San Francisco, and Portland, Oregon to Payne Field in the northern Seattle area. What do you think about that, Tess? If life ever gets back to normal, which I'm sure it's going to because I'm a positive person, um, it sounds like a good option for flying into Seattle. You don't have to go to Seattle, Tacoma anymore. Seattle, Tacoma is kind of super crowded. Sure, yeah. I mean, it, I'll admit it's a little bit hard to wrap my head around flying into Seattle right now, yeah. but yeah, use yeah, your imagination. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, it sounds good. I, I think it'll be a nice option for people. Um, yeah, I like small airports. I've always liked Burbank. I like Long Beach. I like, this sounds like a small airport option in Seattle. Oh, yeah, you love Long Beach Airport. Yeah, I like a good small airport. You can have a nice drink. I feel like we're just fantasizing about years from now when we can be back in the skies. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Flying out of those small airports. We in LA like to find our LAX alternatives. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like a milk alternative. An yeah, LAX it's like alternative. oat milk. Long Beach Airport is the oat milk of airports. Yeah, definitely. You heard it here first. Lastly, Etihad Airways announced on March 8th, International Women's Day, that the United Arab Emirates airline would be signing on to the 25 by 2025 gender pledge. This agreement, already signed by 59 different airlines, pledges to increase female employment by 25% by the year 2025. Etihad also announced that they have changed the name of their business class area, which used to be called businessman class. Now the airline uses more gender-neutral language. In a statement from the airline, Etihad says, We are so proud to already have thousands of strong, ambitious, and talented women working for us. We are excited to continue our journey of investing in gender diversity and human development as ultimately this leads to a more engaged workforce and a higher-performing financial environment. In addition to hiring women... Airlines are being encouraged to hire women in areas often dominated by men, such as pilots and executive positions. What do you think, Tess? It seems pretty cool that a Middle Eastern airline is coming out publicly admitting they can do better by committing to hire more women. Does this make you want to spend some money with Etihad? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great thing. I'm um, I'm excited to book a flight with them once we um, get out of self-quarantine. Yeah, once we <laughs> get back to uh, normal life, if normal life comes back. But I think it's going to because... I'm, um, you know, expecting the best out of the world. Well, yeah, you've always seen through rose-colored glasses, Michael, and we appreciate that. I'm trying to. Um, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of the Plane Crash Podcast. Thank you to Tess Andrade for her hard work with the website and our Patreon and being on the podcast and being producer. Tess, you want to say anything to the people? Thank you so much for having me, Michael. It was a pleasure as always. And I hope everyone's staying healthy out there, treating their friends and family with love and respect. And we'll see you next time. Hopefully we'll have a lot more time to podcast in this new world. Yeah, we'll have to have something to do. So check out our Patreon. Check out the website. Um, We're on Twitter at Plane Crash Pod. Thanks to BetterHelp. If you go to betterhelp.com forward slash Plane Crash Pod, you get 10% off. And I know it's a stressful time for you all out there, but what really matters in life is how you respond in these times of crisis. It's time to rise to the challenge, take the focus off yourself and think about your friends, family, strangers in your community, take care of each other, use common sense, take care of the vulnerable in our communities, and let's work together as one. Help make everyone around you feel more comfortable and cared for. In the end, caring for others will make you feel better as well. So I love you guys so much. It's been a pleasure to spend time with you. Thanks for listening. Hopefully we get to hang out again soon. Stay strong and keep your head up. We're going to make it through this. I love you guys. Bye-bye. Bye.